0: Michelle Young.
1: And I'm Sam Tracy.
0: And you're listening to This Week in Drugs, the leading podcast on all things drugs and drug policy, including news, science, health, and history. This show is an all-volunteer project by students and alumni of Students for Sensible Drug Policy,
1: an awesome organization working to end the war on drugs.
0: Every week on This Week in Drugs, We hope to educate the public and decision makers about drugs in order to eliminate harmful misconceptions and improve public policy.
1: And hopefully have some fun while we're at it.
0: We neither condemn nor condone drug use. Rather, we envision a world in which our attitudes and laws surrounding drugs are grounded in science, compassion, health, and human rights.
2: As always, we'll start with the biggest news headlines and updates and forecasts for the week. After that, we'll have the third installment of our drug of the month, which is Poppers, uh, where Rochelle will go into the history of Poppers. And we'll end with a round table discussion of the New Year's resolutions for the entire This Week in Drugs team. Uh, This is our final episode of Season 3, so that'll be our season finale. And starting next week we'll be going into our uh, winter hiatus where Sam and I will just be bringing you the news every week. So thanks for tuning in and enjoy the rest of the show. now it's time for our weekly news and forecast, where Sam and for the rest of the season and hiatus, I will be talking about some of the biggest news stories from last week and things to look forward to in the weeks ahead. So uh, my my story is up first, and I've actually got three stories wrapped up in one. Uh, Yeah, so uh, this comes to us from The Globe and Mail. CTV News, and Metro News, and actually lots of other Canadian news outlets are, are talking about this. Um, but this week, the federal government of Canada announced a series of legislative changes that would make it easier for supervised injection sites to open. And so the bit that I pulled out here is that um, the Calgary police chief, the Edmonton police chief, uh, both uh, partially support safe injection facilities, and advocates in Manitoba province are urging cities to support Safe injection facilities. So, it's a lot going on there, but boiling it down, basically, Canada uh, uh, relaxed some of the regulations that have been getting in the way of setting up safe injection facilities, and Canada is showing uh, some of their police chiefs have support for safe injection facilities. But it's kind of a qualified support. So this comes. This news comes as we've been really focused on British Columbia, another province, uh, which uh, is home to Vancouver, where there's a huge fight against overdose death and a lack of resources. Uh, and these stories are actually coming out of Alberta and Manitoba, uh, which are seeing uh, similar issues and have prompted their law enforcement officers to take some semblance of an issue, uh, to take some semblance of a position on these facilities. So... The Calgary chief is saying that he's open to introducing supervised facilities for drug users so long as such programs are part of a larger strategy to lower addiction rates and address problems that accompany drug dependency, such as crime and joblessness. Which sounds innocuous, but really what he's saying is, uh, so he says it's always, uh, you know, he says it always makes police chiefs look resistant when they say no to these things. My answer has been sure, as long as it's part of a better strategy. And he goes on to say the goal is really not to have the sites; those sites have to be attached to a strategy to help these people who are suffering addictions. And then similarly, the Edmonton police chief, uh, Rod Necht, supports safe injection sites, but only if other support services are made available to, to people who use drugs. And in a press release, the EPS said that these injection sites will only be successful if food, shelter, medical assistance, and mental health and addiction counseling services are offered on sites. He says... A concerted, integrated, and sustained effort is required to help drug users manage their addictions. Without such a support structure in place, supervised injection sites in Edmonton will simply enable the use of illegal drugs, prolong their misery, and further their victimization. So, a whole lot of stuff going on there. But, to me, you know, the way I read this is that, No one is saying that supervised injection facilities need to exist in a vacuum. And in fact, I think most advocates would be hopeful that these places would be a hub for folks to connect to services. And already, most syringe access programs in the United States and Canada serve as an entry point for their participants to get connected with other resources if those resources exist. And so there's a lot of good stuff here, right, because, like, you know, people with problematic uh, relationships with drugs are affected by a wide variety of issues like, uh, not uh, like unemployment and experiencing homelessness and food insecurity and all of those things. But both of these police chiefs are coming out really strong for progressive solutions. On the back of sort of a, a really regressive uh, conceptual uh, conceptualization of drug addiction as uh, still this sort of like failing and, and something that that we're enabling if we're uh, creating these supervised injection facilities, so I, I think there's a lot of hope. Like it's it's really good, but it's just like it's not like they're not quite there yet. They were still we're still off somewhere.
1: Yeah, because those statements do sound so supportive in certain ways, but. I have such mixed feelings about it, too, that at first, I mean, with, without actually hearing them and like having a larger conversation, it's so hard to tell if they're saying, yeah, these are helpful, but we also have to include other things. And then, hey, if they're advocating for even more services and housing first approach and that kind of stuff, I'm definitely on board. But if they're just saying that, oh, these we, we can't have just these and want to attach other things to, you know, make it so big that none of it actually happens then that's obviously just kind of using some other line of reasoning in order to, to sync something that, that could be really helpful, even in isolation, but, of course, better with those other programs wrapped around it. So I do hope that this doesn't try to, you know, torpedo this or something, rather, uh, actually does turn into an expansion of more programs that, that are really helpful in combination with these.
2: Right. But, you know, I, I I just think we need to be really careful because what happens when you set up uh, amazing housing and, and jobs uh, programs and food programs, mm-hmm. and then people still use drugs because humans like to use drugs. And like, right. there are reasons beyond being destitute that people turn to drugs. Like, that's just like the reality of it. And, you know, we mm-hmm. talk so much about this kinder, gentler drug war about people and, you know, white people in the suburbs of America with drug problems. Right. And like, so I just I, I'm just concerned that, you know, know, if you do all these services and then consider, you know, harm reduction as sort of a a secondary measure and and not actually a solution in and of itself, that Mm -hmm. we're still furthering stigma and, like, there's still going to be problems wrapped up in it. But, I mean, that's not to say that I am not happy about expanded services, you know, I think mm-hmm. that's great. So, um, it looks like the health minister of Manitoba is kind of hemming and hawing uh, in that province, uh, calling for more community input and stuff like that, saying that they, they want to make a more informed decision, but uh, I think the urgency of this makes that uh, actually a really kind of uh, immoral stance to take on uh, the process. So, mm-hmm. uh, that about wraps it up for me. I know this is a lot of, a lot of stuff wrapped up in one story, but I thought mm-hmm. that this was a, this a really big one. thing. Yeah, this is this, this is really huge, and, uh, you know, congratulations to Ken Canada for uh, continuing to be really progressive, and uh, I hope that they continue to push, uh, push the envelope as far as you know, where all of these uh, measures are coming from and, and what they're trying to do. Mm-hmm.
1: Absolutely. And so my, my next story, or my, my first story of today, is uh, back in the United States. And unfortunately, kind of a negative thing, but uh, we'll get, get into how it actually is barely any change at all coming up here. Um, but, but the story here is that a lot of the cannabis community ha- has been in uproar over this past week because of what some are claiming to be the DEA, you know, railroading CBD into Schedule 1. And I saw a bunch of posts about it being an outrage that it may have been illegal, calling for people to get active about it and, and push back and, and taking a really activist stance on it. But, but to me, it was actually all kind of silly because I was definitely in the in the camp Uh, before this who agreed that CBD was already Schedule 1, it has been for a long time. Um, There's kind of another school of thought that um, people saying that there was a loophole, essentially, that allowed all of these uh, quote-unquote CBD-only products to be mailed uh, across state lines and sold online, and there really was a a very large, um, very dark gray market um, surrounding that. Uh, so, but the DEA did put out a, a notice of uh, an official rulemaking, saying that uh, this was a final rule, saying that uh, they're creating a, a new code number for "quote unquote" marijuana extract, um, which allows them to, to track separately from marijuana specifically, and does include CBD extract. And so, a lot of people were up in arms about this, but CBD was already in Schedule One. Um, I don't understand or uh, I can't be as eloquent about the uh, specifics of that from a from a legal standpoint as some others. I know that MPP and some other groups have some really great readouts on it. But people like uh, John Hudak, uh, who we had on a few weeks ago to talk about the election, uh, he talked about it on Twitter, saying breaking CBD has never been anything but a schedule one substance. D.A. did not reschedule it today. And anyone who says so is wholly misinformed. And that seemed to be a lot of the position uh, or the, the big situation happening that day. Uh, so I do just want to have the new story be here that nothing changed. And uh, this is more of a symbolic change, if, if anything.
2: Yeah, um, this seems uh, pretty much par for the course with the way that, like, marijuana policy and the Internet interact with one another. I mm-hmm. mean, there's always <laughs> been conspiracy theories about the, the H in the way that marijuana is, is spelled in some documents or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, different uh, loopholes about, like, seeds and, um, you know, different things about, like, the, the U.S. patent numbers and stuff like that. And right. and, and I think, you know, th- this is not necessarily the fault of people who are just trying to stay up to date in, in cutting edge. Mm-hmm. I think this is a fault of, like, law makers like probably intentionally obfuscating a lot of these like complex policies and, and what they actually mean. Um, oh definitely. It's know, easy so-
1: to have a lot of uh, big conspiracy theories or, or, or ideas of crazy loopholes when this is an area of policy that has a- had some actual like kind of legit conspiracies or, or like very deliberate efforts right. to, to obfuscate things and confuse yeah. people in, in light of them.
2: If anything, you know, and I'm reluctant to say this, but it's almost commendable that the DEA has clarified this. Like, mm-hmm. you know, this is, it, the DEA is a terrible agency and I hope that they get uh, completely like destroyed, um, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and dismantled. But like, you know, this this is almost reminiscent of like a, a consumer agency, you know, r- releasing a memo saying like, no, like you actually can't do this, like d- just FYI, mm-hmm. like we wanted to clear up the rules. Like to me, this yeah, just exactly. seems like a clarification. And I think that that is actually like what government agency, like that is something the government agencies should be uh, accountable for doing so like Mm -hmm. I'm glad that this specific agency despite my um, you know distaste for it generally is doing like something to clear up these misconceptions uh, you know and I hope that one day we can ship CBD uh, from wherever to wherever Uh, but I'm Mm -hmm. also glad that like maybe now like you know People who don't have access to uh, good information, you know, will be less likely to implicate themselves in a serious federal crime because they understand, Mm -hmm. you know, like, oh, nope, can't do it.
1: Yeah, or also very likely just getting ripped off by people selling uh, either fake or diluted or just ineffective CBD products online because we have been seeing a lot of that as well. I think the FDA put out kind of a warning letter that didn't have any teeth but just saying, stop doing this to some companies because they're marketing these CBD products which are on the one hand illegal, and then when tested they actually have very little if any CBD in them. And because it was unregulated, essentially taking advantage of sick people who are desperate and looking for some sort of uh, fixed if they've had some sort of condition that has been untreatable and then selling them a product that isn't actually the product it claims to be and is not effective or anything is is a really, really serious area of consumer harm. So uh, this is one of kind of the few areas where the DEA, I guess, has actually had a kind of a consumer protection standpoint. Uh, but we'll definitely be keeping tabs on this and if there's any other uh, changes here. Uh, but, Tyler, would you like to kick it off with your next one?
2: Yeah, our next one comes to us from the Riverfront Times in Missouri. Um, the, in a lawsuit filed last week, the Cole County prosecuting attorney, Mark Richardson, argued that voters have no right to legalize marijuana. Um, and he said, quote, the Missouri Constitution is explicitly subject to the Constitution of the United States. And since any federal government still considers marijuana a Schedule One drug lacking any accepted medical use, Richardson's lawsuit is asking a judge to, to declare state-level marijuana legalization initiatives unconstitutional. Um, So, you know, I wanted to talk about this briefly because I think it's part of a broader approach uh, to drug policy reform and reform in general, where people try to keep citizens out of the political process. Um, In my work, I often deal with administrators and local politicians and sometimes even students who are against drug policy reform or, like, won't pursue it because they say that drugs are against the law. And uh, this was something when I was working at UConn to get the student government to endorse uh, a bill that would end marijuana prohibition in Connecticut. I had a lot of pushback because people said we can't possibly advocate for uh, changing the law because marijuana is illegal. And I was like, well, <laughs> that, that's really not how this works. Right. Pretty like, we, like, <laughs> like one of the things about, like, being a, a you know, a citizen is that, like, you do ostensibly, you know, I mean, to some degree, like have a say in the laws of the land. Like that's that's the important part about civic duties. Like there's no reason to be involved in civic life if you can't, uh, you know, have that sort of influence. And I think this is this is going to be a huge and interesting case. Um, I imagine that it's going to be completely thrown out, uh, you know, or uh, that uh, the prosecutor is going to lose. And I, I hope that they lose. And I hope that serves as uh, sort of an emboldening victory uh, for people mm-hmm. who are trying to do drug policy reform. And, you know, like that's the whole point of doing reform is that you recognize a problem and like to go through any avenue to fix that problem and do it with legitimacy so that like once you fix the problem, there's no uh, there's no question that it was done in good faith and like that you uh, are on the right side of history.
1: Mm hmm. Yeah, I do feel like this lawsuit probably is just doomed to fail here just because, well, we have definitely suffered some pretty big setbacks in, uh, in the courts in respect to marijuana. There have been a lot of other big victories like the Supreme Court uh, just denying to hear that a uh, lawsuit brought forth by, I believe, uh, Nebraska and Oklahoma against Colorado. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> and back with, uh, yeah. And I think, um, I think it was Arizona where I think it was Governor Jan Brewer, the st- same one who was Uh, So awful about that immigration law uh, SB 1070, but uh, who had asked the federal government for uh, Basically permission to implement medical marijuana um, Knowing that they would say no um, In order to go around her law or or, or the initiative that was passed by citizens there Um, And then of course, Arizona now has a, a pretty thriving medical marijuana industry So they lost that battle and I really am hoping that Uh, This approach of trying to to get the federal government to shut down these programs is going to continue to be a failing policy, because I know that uh, also Governor Paul LePage, who we've uh, talked about and derided very much on the show before, um, is essentially asking the Trump administration to to intervene against his state's marijuana law uh, since they just legalized uh, last month. And so. Who, who knows exactly what direction this is going to go in but i i hope and think that we'll we'll keep racking up wins here
2: excellent and so and then, i think uh, sam next one's you
1: yeah so for my uh the last big news story here um is a positive development on the u.s side and this is that the u.s government has delayed the renewal of a really huge grant to the government of the Philippines over human rights concerns. And so this grant is called the Millennium Challenge grant. um, And the aim of it is to, quote, demonstrate a commitment to just and democratic governance, investments in its people, and economic freedom. And so this is all about supporting developing governments um, who are able to achieve those things. So um, having a just government, a, a democratic system protecting human rights. Um, and, and really safeguarding the civil liberties of its residents. And so this is for five years. It's a total of $430 million, so almost half a billion dollars. So this is a, a pretty huge deal, especially to a, to a developing country. And uh, the U.S. Embassy put out a statement uh, explaining their uh, hesitation to renew it. And I'm just going to read this out because I think it is really important. And here it is. We will continue to monitor unfolding events in the Philippines. And this underscores that all country partners are expected to maintain eligibility, which includes not just a passing scorecard, but also a demonstrated commitment to the rule of law, due process and respect for human rights. The board's deferral of a vote on the Philippines' reselection is not a suspension or termination of the Philippines' MCC compact eligibility, end quote. So this is basically a first warning shot saying hey, you need to get your acts together and, and stop these human rights atrocities or we're not going to give you this grant.
2: Yeah, I think that's really encouraging. Um, you know, it is uh, – we talk about this all the time. It's it's enmeshed in all these complex international relations too. So I, mm-hmm. I think that um, this is a positive step, but I'm also not convinced uh, – you know, it, it just seems like the – the extrajudicial killings are picking up steam uh, from everything mm-hmm. that I'm reading, and that like there's a lot of you know even public support in the Philippines, and um, you know it's we're going into an era where our president-elect has you know uh, endorsed these things tacitly, uh, and it's just kind of a you know I, I hope that this has I hope this has a really large impact on saving the lives of people who are being. Uh, murdered uh, without cause. That's mm-hmm. that's what I hope, and this is uh, something that I that we ought to really keep on following. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So. And
1: while this is really positive, I am also pretty nervous about the real impact of what this is going to be. Unfortunately, because I, and I don't know exactly what the timeline is here, but since this is just a delay on the vote, I mean, and this is from the U.S. Embassy, and so uh, the U.S. ambassador and you know the head of the U.S. government is going to be changing uh, next month and we're really not sure what way trump is going to go on this i mean he has as we've talked about in other news and i think in the discussion uh this week he trump is essentially cozying up to duterte praising him and uh while duterte has been essentially giving the middle finger to the united states and obama um i wonder if trump is basically going to play right into his hands and try to Give them a bunch of money while they're also cozying up to china and really just using that rivalry between the us and china in order to enrich themselves while still doing whatever they want and uh killing innocent people there um so i am i am nervous about this but it is a good first sign and maybe a lot of the that embassy staff will be sticking around who knows and uh, we'll be able to to get their ear and show them that uh, we shouldn't be supporting that government
2: absolutely Um, So I think it's about time to move into our quick hit headlines. Mm -hmm. Uh, First one is me. Uh, So in the UK, smoking and drinking among young people is at the lowest level on record. Uh, Fewer than 5% of children aged 8 to 15 have smoked, which is down three quarters since 2003, while only 17% admitted ever drinking alcohol, which is a fall of two thirds, according to an annual study of Health Trends
1: a British racehorse that came in second in a major race tested positive for methamphetamine during the mandatory post-race drug test. Since his name is Party Till Dawn, this sparked a lot of jokes on the internet, with many referencing BoJack Horseman.
2: The Southern California News Group uh, published an editorial that was titled The War on Drugs Has Failed, and it's time to rethink our approach, citing the president of Colombia and the Portugal model.
1: A new study in the journal Psychopharmacology entitled Subjective Aggression During Alcohol and Cannabis Intoxication Before and After Aggression Exposure found that alcohol amplifies aggressive behavior while marijuana lowers it. And now it's time for the weekly forecast. Tyler, do you want to give our listeners a heads up for something coming up soon?
2: Yeah, so the SSDP 2017 registration has opened, uh, along with all of our frequently asked questions and information about the conference coming up in March. So uh, we'll drop a link to that in the show notes here and uh, go check it out. And hopefully we'll see you in Portland.
1: Yeah, I will definitely be there. It's going to be my first time in Oregon and, of course, my first time in Portland, too. So I'm really looking forward to it. Me, too. And for my forecast is another one that's pretty far off, but want to give our listeners a heads up about is that the 25th International Harm Reduction Conference is going to be in May in Montreal this year. So it's May 14th to May 17th. Um, And it's hosted by Harm Reduction International, which is a big group that's been pushing for this for quite some time. And so it is exciting, especially being in Canada this year, because Canada, as we mentioned in our first news story this week, is really leading on a lot of these issues. So uh, it's a great opportunity to, I'm sure, hear from a lot of folks working in Canada on this and people from all over the world. So uh, be sure to check out their website, which we'll include a link to in our show notes. And that is all for our weekly news and forecast this week. Uh, so as always, we're trying to keep track of everything, but there's a lot going on. So if you find a news story that's really interesting to you, something that you want our opinions on or want us to discuss on the show, if you have an event coming up or know of something on the horizon that you want us to highlight, feel free to send it to us. You can email us at thisweekanddrugs at or send us a message on Facebook or Twitter. And that's it, and we'll see you next week.
0: Now it's time for the drug of the month where we take a closer look at the background science, history, and recent news and trends in a different drug each month. For December, we're examining a class of drugs called alkyl nitrates, which are more commonly known as poppers, and for this episode, we'll be going over the history of poppers, when people started using them, and how laws and societal attitudes about them have evolved over time. As I mentioned in the first installment, amyl nitrates were first synthesized in 1844 by French chemist Antoine-Jérôme Ballard. A decade later, in 1857, Sir Thomas Lauder Brunton discovered its medical use in treating angina pectoris, or chest pain. It's unclear when its use as an antidote to cyanide poisoning was discovered, but according to one source, in 1959, medical professionals claimed, quote, a century of amyl nitrate usage for medical purposes without fatality or casualty, end quote. There is no indication that poppers were widely used for recreational purposes during that first century though it's impossible to say they weren't used at all. And, in 1960, the US Food and Drug Administration approved nitrates for over-the-counter sales without prescription. However, immediately the following year, allegedly based on reports of recreational usage, the FDA reinstated the prescription requirement for amyl nitrites. Other nitrites were banned for human consumption entirely under the Anti-Drug Abuse Act of 1988. As I've mentioned previously, the recreational use of poppers is very closely connected to its use in enhancing anal sex, especially within the gay community. A 1988 study found that 69% of men who had had sex with other men in the Baltimore, D.C. area did use poppers. Similarly, Similarly, the ban on human consumption of nitrites in the 1980s closely followed years of gay panic and the unfounded, likely homophobic belief that poppers were the cause of AIDS. As with so many illicit substances, it's difficult to pinpoint the moment when poppers entered into recreational use, though most sources point to the late 1950s and early 1960s, particularly increasing in popularity with the rise of disco. One source claims that the first poppers sold commercially were in Los Angeles in 1969, containing isobutyl nitrate and the first brand name trademarked as, quote, locker room, which is still on the market today. In 1977, the Wall Street Journal and Time magazine both published articles claiming that the market for poppers as a recreational drug had become as big as $50 million a year. One source reports that by 1979, 5 million Americans identified as regular users of poppers. Even in these early pieces, Time and the Wall Street Journal also reported that popper use began primarily among homosexual men as a way to enhance sexual pleasure but quickly spread to quote avant-garde heterosexuals as a result of aggressive marketing. In 1979, the first major study of the use and effects of alkyl nitrites as a recreational drug was published. In 1980, the Consumer Product Safety Commission began an investigation into the potential of abuse of poppers. The next few years saw a flurry of medical and academic interest in poppers, particularly to investigate the relationship between the use of poppers and AIDS. Recall that at this time it still wasn't known that HIV uh, was the primary cause of AIDS in uh, the homosexual population. In 1982 Thomas Lowry published in the British Journal of Sexual Medicine his seminal work on the subject of nitrate abuse. A year later two studies were published suggesting a link between poppers and the incidence of Carposi's sarcoma which is a type of tumor developed in AIDS victims. In 1984, the cover story of Time magazine probed the association of alkyl nitrates abuse with AIDS further. That same year, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services determined that nitrate abuse did not lead to medical emergency. Nevertheless, the following year, in 1985, the National Jewish Center for Immunology and Respiratory Diseases claimed to have discovered a link between the use of nitrates and the risk of contracting HIV. That same year, Dr. James Curran, who then led the Task Force on HIV-AIDS at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, declared that there was insufficient evidence to support an, an anti poppers campaigns in combating the spread of AIDS. Furthermore, the HIV virus was discovered in 1986 and medical evidence quickly mounted demonstrating that the virus, and not nitrites, were the cause of AIDS infections. However, the issue was not yet laid to rest. Certain segments of the medical community continued insisting on an association between the use of poppers and quote-unquote gay cancer, as AIDS was still sometimes referred to then. In 1997, more than a decade after the connection between poppers and AIDS had been medically debunked, Stephen O'Brien, the director of the Laboratory of Genomic Diversity at the National Cancer Institute, was still compelled to issue a stern reprimand of the medical community in Newsline, titled, The HIV-AIDS Debate is Over, What to Tell Your Patients When They Ask If HIV Causes AIDS. In addition to summarizing the mountainous evidence that HIV does indeed cause AIDS to a medical degree of certainty, O'Brien denounced the crusade against paupers as a largely puritan, homophobic campaign led by molecular virologist Peter Duisburg, who claimed that AIDS was caused not by HIV, but by a combination of recreational drugs, hyperstimulation of the immune system, and possibly even antiretroviral drugs themselves. O'Brien concludes his article... Um, with the following quote in the end Duisburg's alternative explanation for the aids epidemic was little more than an indictment of a certain kind of gay lifestyle one that is popularly perceived as consecrated to casual sex and equally ca- casual drug taking as such his hypothesis was but a variant of the mean-spirited fundamental bu- fundamentalist belief that people with aids are victims of their own vices end quote Despite its increasing popularity in the decades since, both among gay and straight users, particularly within the club and rave scenes, the recreational use of poppers has never entirely escaped its association within the gay community. Again, as we've stated before and as we've discussed extensively on the show, in 2016, poppers re-entered mainstream political discussion when the British Parliament was debating the Psychoactive Substances Act of 2016. This bill banning the illicit illicit recreational use of substances that would still be available for legitimate commercial purposes was considered by many to be aimed directly at the gay community. In particular, gay conservative member of parliament Crispin Blunt came out strongly against the law specifically because it would affect the legality of poppers. Blunt testified publicly that he had used and currently uses poppers. An amendment to specifically exclude alkyl nitrites from the ban was voted down in parliament. However, later that year, the Advisory Council on the Misuse of Drugs stated that because alcohol nitrites do not directly stimulate or depress the central nervous system, poppers do not fall within the scope of the Psychoactive Substances Act. So that's all for the history of December's drug of the month. Tune in next week when Sam will wrap up with some recent news and trends about poppers.
1: We don't have a paid sponsor this week, but if we did, this is where their commercial would be. Are you listening to this right now? Do you have a cool business, political campaign, website, pet cause, or literal pet that you want us to tell our hundreds of passionate listeners about? Then you're in luck. For a small fee to help cover our costs, you can get your very own 30-second ad that would go right here, be read by me, and be listened to by everyone who's hearing me say all of this right now. So if that sounds good to you, swing on over to thisweekindrugs.org and click on the sponsor button at the top to learn more. Now, back to the show.
0: And now it's time for our roundtable discussion, where we bring together some of the brightest minds in drug policy reform to talk about the biggest issues facing us today. For today's episode, which is our season finale, we've brought together the entire team behind This Week in Drugs to discuss our drug policy New Year's resolutions for 2017. So today, Sam and I are joined by Tyler Williams, our producer and occasional substitute co-host, and Sarah Merrigan, our engagement director. Thanks, Tyler and Sarah, for hanging out with us this morning.
2: Thanks for having us, guys.
0: Yeah, I'm yeah. happy we could have everybody here for the finale.
2: I'm glad that we still call ourselves the uh, brightest minds in drug policy.
0: <laughs> we got to be
2: honest You're about sure, that.
0: Huh? sure <laughs> are. So 2016 has been an absolutely insane year um, by any standards, <laughs> both good and bad bad, um, including a lot of amazing progress on drug policy reform in particular. So in 2016, not only did we double the number of legal adult-used marijuana states here in the United States, but we've seen dramatic increases in naloxone access across the country, more attention paid to harm reduction measures generally, and progress in cannabis reform internationally, probably, or maybe some stuff that Sam and Tyler have talked to you about on the news already. But we've also seen some pretty terrible setbacks in drug policy, including the genocide of drug users and alleged drug users users in the Philippines without due process. Um, so I guess genocide doesn't often happen with due process. Um, so today we're getting together again as a team to answer the question, what are we going to do to fix drug policy in the coming year? We've each picked one topic in drug policy form that we want to get involved with, keep our eye on, or renew our dedication to in 2017. So Sam, do you want to kick us off with our New Year's resolutions?
1: Sure. Um, So to start things off with mine, um, my New Year's resolution is to renew my focus on working on across the board drug decriminalization. So, I mean, this is something I've talked about about a lot on the show was kind of the origins of us kind of starting this podcast originally because me and Tyler were working on some other uh, projects and, uh, and ideas together that kind of led into this. but because of the podcast and you mm-hmm. actually
0: run like a twitter handle or something called decrim works right that you
1: yes but i have not really posted on it since this podcast started so that has taken a very much a backseat, or like been waiting in the background so, on so a don't
0: go check out sam's other twitter handle decrim works
1: <laughs> <laughs> not yet perhaps perhaps in february or something like that <laughs> but yeah because i had been working on that for a, a little while but then the the podcast happened and this has been a ton of fun but also of course a ton of work and, and so I haven't really been able to focus on that and with with marijuana legalization happening at the state level including in my home state here in Massachusetts like for me uh state politics it, it is really always been my passion and whatever state that I'm in I just find it to be a lot more interesting to do stuff on the local level instead of federal level stuff which gets so so distant to me and so thinking like oh what's the next state level reform now that marijuana is pretty much done i mean we've done decrim and medical and and legalization and now what next and so i do really think that full decriminalization is like one of the best possibilities for having a state level initiative which we haven't really seen attempted yet but i think would be a, a really cool thing to do
2: are you
0: talking about the full decriminalization of all drugs
1: yeah, so kind of like a Portugal style thing, but yeah. more so, you know, adapted. So it actually to has been attempted America's at
0: least politics. once. Yeah, um, I was, was going to um, ask. One of Is our there... guests, um, Delegate Dan Moreheim from Maryland, actually introduced that bill
3: uh, uh, yeah, earlier a this bill. year.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that That's kind right. of. Yeah, that kind of was started uh, that kicked off our crazy 2016, because that's mm-hmm. the first time we've seen anything introduced like that in the United States. Yeah. Um, but you're talking about a more comprehensive campaign, not just a piece of legislation introduced. What would that look like?
1: Well, I mean, uh, to to me, at least, it's a lot more interesting in, uh, to talk about ballot initiatives. And just because I think that unfortunately, like I mean, it was awesome that that uh, delegate Moreheim introduced that. And, and I do remember talking about it. And that was. Really cool to hear about, but I, I am pretty sure that it pretty much went nowhere, just because legislatures are are very scared of that idea still. And I don't really expect legislatures to really warm up to full drug decriminalization, just because it's so easy to to spin as being soft on drugs or something like that. But
3: I mean, here's my question though: Do I? We covered it a few. Oh, I have no sense of time. We covered it mm-hmm. this season. Mm -hmm. Um, But there are the groups of law enforcement in Oregon that came out in favor of full decriminalization. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I guess Oregon is uh, I've never lived in Oregon or Massachusetts or even visited. So I can't really speak about the political climate. Um,
0: But do you think
1: Yeah, I think Oregon police are a lot more laid back than Massachusetts police, unfortunately, or <laughs> that they have a much more uh, harm reduction standpoint than we've got over here. It's a little puritan still.
2: It also matters to like what type of police that is, because if that's like the Portland Oregon police who've come out in support of it, that's different than the entire like I, and I and I should know this because I edit every episode, but <laughs> but Sarah, <laughs> do you remember like was that the police union of the state or was that like a specific department?
0: Um, I don't know if Sarah knows for sure, but from my memory, it wasn't the unions, but it was the state chiefs of police. And the chiefs, actually, Mm -hmm. from what I've heard, are generally more open-minded about these things than the unions are.
1: Yeah, because like the Patrolmen's Association tend to be a lot more punitive.
0: It is a good sign, though, even though I don't know how persuasive Oregon police would be to Massachusetts police, but at least Mm -hmm. um, you have that... Ongoing conversation, you know, going on between different law enforcement departments, mm-hmm. um, hopefully, are considering different types of approaches.
1: Yeah. And it is here in Massachusetts, too, that uh, Gloucester is uh, Gloucester, Mass is the city where that uh, Angel Initiative got started by, I think it was police chief Campanella was his last name. Um, that's turned into that organization, Perry, which is the police addiction or police assisted adduction addiction recovery initiative um and they're they're trying to spread it all over the country so it's kind of like a law enforcement assisted diversion kind of thing but i think that written the right way a decrim bill could actually kind of include that kind of idea
0: yeah so let's kind of um revisit what you're talking about so ballot initiatives versus um the ability a, a, bill, a, a le- piece of legislation now Massachusetts is fortunate that you guys have the ba- the citizens ballot initiative process. That's not something that's available uh, to Marylanders, um, mm-hmm. which is why Massachusetts may be a better place to get this kind of um, campaign rolling. What And I know a lot of people like people who haven't been watching our show or listening to our show for a long time kind of freak out at the idea of decriminalization of all drugs. You know, like when you mm-hmm. kind of present that idea to people, um, the reaction often is like, Even like hard drugs like meth and heroin. So like, what are other measures that, you know, that would be included in decriminalization to ensure that that fear is not fulfilled, or like to address those concerns, I guess, about what people are worried about.
1: Yeah, because the way that they do it in Portugal, I believe that it's if you get caught, it's not just a straight here's we confiscate it and here's a ticket and go on your way. You do get referred to some sort of Government board um, that's not exactly court. It, it sounds kind of like a drug court, but it's different because it has uh, just, a, it's, it's not law enforcement. It's a, I think there's a psychologist and uh, like a medical doctor and a, a lawyer.
3: Small panel um, mm-hmm. of experts uh, that you meet with. It's, I, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't compare it to. It's, i don't know it feels less of like a criminal justice system and more of mm-hmm. like a you i don't know it reminds me more of getting in trouble at school honestly and having to go <laughs> and, and meet with mm-hmm. like the, the experts in these
2: areas um it's like a referral I, I think you're exactly right sarah like as though you're at a university campus and an ra sees that you are like doing something problematic with alcohol and instead of like calling the cops on you, they like make sure you get referred to mental health and addiction services or something on campus.
1: Right. And so I think that sort of system works pretty well. Basically having the idea of, of treatment instead of incarceration. Of, of course though, I do have some misgivings or, or, or hesitations with the idea of any kind of coerced treatment, but there I know that they, if you don't seem to have problematic use or, or addiction, um, they, they're not given some court, sort of punitive measure treating everyone like they're addicted. And so I think that is one really good way to approach it. But I mean, there are a lot of details to talk about. But I do want to also move on to, to hearing about each of your guys' New Year's resolutions. So, uh, Sarah, do you want to talk about what you're thinking about for 2017?
3: Sure. Um, I guess my resolution is maybe a little more abstract. Um, it's more of a a dedication to like, continuing to be aware um, and raising awareness about the situation in the Philippines that Rochelle spoke um, about briefly earlier. Um, I think, as maybe most of our regular listeners know by now, I am pretty pretty passionate about international drug policy issues, and I think anybody who's been listening to our show over the last six months um, has come to be aware that the p- policies of Rodrigo Duterte in the Philippines, are even hard to put into words. Um, they're violent and they are extremist and they are as far removed from the concept of harm reduction as one can get. Um, and I think there are a couple. You know, I, I could talk about this forever, and we've already done a whole episode on it. But one really interesting thing uh, that caught my eye while we were preparing for this episode was there's a um, politician in Australia. Who has kind of come under fire the last few days for making comments that um, Australia could learn from Rodrigo Duterte, and wow. you know this this guy's not the no. first one to say that, right? No, we've no. heard um, recently Donald Trump shared similar mm-hmm. sentiments. Um, the president of Indonesia has had um, has complimented him. There, you know, this is not <laughs> unfortunately it's not the first time, but it's still pretty shocking. And I think maybe he was the first um, Australian politician. Mm -hmm. And he went on later to kind of clarify in a very long Facebook comment that we can link to on the website um, that, you know, he didn't, he's not actually advocating for genocide. But I think um, I just, I think it's really interesting. I would love to know what you guys think about how this is being received internationally, um, particularly now that we have Donald Trump in office and he has invited uh, Rodrigo Duterte to visit the White House.
1: Uh, um, yeah, this is something that when it, when we were first reporting on it and hearing about it, I thought that it was so far out there and, and kind of outside of the accepted norms and uh, of pretty much any country Um that it would get very quickly condemned, um, and the U S the current Obama administration has actually, I think done some good things lately in terms of holding up some of their aid, um, rather than giving it to them, which, which did happen immediately afterwards and was very concerning, but they've backed up. But yeah, as you said, with Trump now coming into office and I assume that he just like was more ignorant of the situation and, and hopefully, doesn't know the details and was just calling every world leader up and saying, Hey, you're great at what you do just to like, you know, get on their good side. Um, but Kerté
3: has has t- told sources that they discussed it um, and maybe not it, the, mm-hmm. the gruesome gory details, but he said that Trump
0: specifically complimented him on his drug war. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I and think it, it kind of fits in with Trump's um, position on being a law and order you know, candidate and president and tough on crime and throwing those phrases around that we haven't heard in, in decades or haven't seriously heard in decades, it seems like. But it does seem like uh, at an international level, drug policy was kind of a harbinger of a lot of um, politics to come because um, for the past couple of years, we've seen this shift towards a more harm reduction approach internationally and a more compassionate look at the drug using community from a lot of countries, and that's kind of what brought us to Ongas 2016 at the beginning of the year, where unfortunately we didn't see a lot of the reforms we were hoping for that would, um, very that would shift the global drug policy, you know, officially. Um, and now we're kind of bouncing back the other way, where um, you know, much more prohibitionist anti-drug user um, rhetoric is becoming. It is becoming like complimented and normalized and touted. And um, it almost reflects the, sh- the, the shift politically here in the United States where, you know, for the past two terms, um, President Obama's kind of more lenient approach to the marijuana states have kind of given other countries hope that, um, you know, that drug policy would be able to move forward internationally and, and it's kind of bouncing mm-hmm. back now with Trump in power. I don't know if you guys see the same parallels there, but it kind of, to me, resonated in that way.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is kind of a scary idea of just essentially thinking of how the way a country treats its drug users, essentially one of its most vulnerable populations, as kind of an indicator for the way that that country's is going. Um, and with the philippines I, I feel like that is definitely the case that um things are escalating and it's, it sounds it just reminds me so much of uh or, or keeps me so ner- uh nervous about it because of we went from the the 60s and the 70s which was much more lenient and no one really saw the 80s coming um but then we ended up having some of the most punitive times ahead of us and, and i am really hoping that we'll be able to to hold that off this time rather than having a, a, another pretty gigantic reversal on the horizon
0: and so sarah um when we did talk to oliver um at the beginning of the season um when we did an entire episode on the philippines he talked extensively about china's role kind of in influencing the philippines actions and kind of intimidating them in a way uh, has china kind of played a role in this evolving like in the months since then what's going on there I think Oliver can certainly speak to that um,
3: far more eloquently than I can. I, um, but I, I wanted to talk about it a little bit because I think there there's a really interesting piece in Reuters um, this last week talking about the the, t- the title of the piece is "Meth Gangs of China Play Star Role in Philippines Drug Crisis," um, and there are a lot of um, A lot of the data from the UN Office on Drugs and Crime, and I think the Philippines um, Narcotics Agency, their own data shows that meth, which is one of the biggest um, problem drugs in the Philippines, a lot of the meth that is causing the problems in the Philippines comes from China. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, but the China-Filipino relationship is incredibly important. Um, China's a very powerful country, obviously. Um, and the, the, you know, non-drug, non-drug related political concerns aside, like the South China Sea and things like that, Mm -hmm. um, the, the relationship they've had, uh, in fighting, trying to fight the scourge of drugs has been interesting because China, um, both the government and just wealthy businessmen, uh, have dedicated large sums of money, um, millions of dollars, to build rehab centers in the Philippines, and
0: um, at interesting. So even though China is supplying, I mean, uh, it's not one mo- monolithic unit that's working in conjunction with each other. But even the the irony of you know uh, drugs primarily coming in. F- to the Philippines from China. Is that what you said? And then they're also building rehab centers in the Philippines to also yeah. help treat the users who are using their drugs. And But um, China
3: is also pretty adamantly, um, they tend to deny mm-hmm. any charges that the meth is coming from their country. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of the data shows that it is, but they deny that they're part of the problem. And Blame it on the Philippines, um, mm-hmm. but then they are donating large sums of money to building rehabs, um, and the Phil- and Duterte really doesn't show. He's he's pretty eager to he's co- eager to cozy up to um, to China. I think he in his sort of. I really want to say I really want to drop the f bomb right now, but Tyler's gonna bleep me. <laughs> <laughs> um,
2: it's fine. I'll just I'll just I'll just bleep you like. In Duterte's.
3: <laughs> um, very very anti-western um sentiments and Mm -hmm. giving the middle literally giving the middle finger to the european union um Mm -hmm. i think he's pretty eager to move close like build on the relationships with countries like china um Mm -hmm. regardless of how how the um drugs might be impacting the country on on a larger scale Mm
1: -hmm. yeah it is going to be interesting to see Mm -hmm. Yeah, it will be really interesting to see how all of the international politics plays into this with with Trump and China. I mean, that is something he definitely talks a lot about. But um, Tyler, for for you, what are you thinking for uh, your New Year's resolution for 2017?
2: So in 2017, I want to renew my commitment to bolstering the civil rights and due process for uh, confidential informants and people who might be approached to become confidential informants for law enforcement agencies. Uh, This has been a hot button issue in the US Um, two separate times, uh, you know, in the recent past with the murder of Rachel Hoffman in Florida and the death, but suspected murder of Andrew Sadik in um, in North Dakota. Um, So for people who might be a little bit uh, behind on these stories. Uh, basically, um, you know, these were two uh, these were two people who were students, um, and Rachel Hoffman was connected with the SSTP network even, who were uh, basically charged with or going to be charged with, um, you know, they were caught with small amounts of marijuana, and they were brought in by the law enforcement agency, and uh, without lawyers present, without consulting their parents, you know, again, these are students uh, at the time. Uh, the law enforcement officers basically promised them a bogus deal that they would throw out the charges if they helped them find their connections. Um, But here's the thing is, you know, in Rachel Hoffman's case, they used her as a confidential informant for, like, a much more serious, uh, like, higher-level drug deal than she would. You know, she had a a, a personal amount of marijuana, right, and they, they asked her to, like, try to score, like, bunch of MDMA and it was and like going to a wholesaler basically. Yeah, going to, to like, a wholesaler mm. at, from being a student on a college campus who probably picked up like an eighth from, you know, a person in yeah. her in her dorm hall. Um mm-hmm. and they gave her no training. Uh they didn't give her adequate backup and she uh basically like the plans changed when she met her contact. And police Mm -hmm. lost track of her, and then they found her murdered. Um, And in Florida, uh, that sparked, uh, actually, uh, Rachel's Law, which now requires law enforcement agencies to provide special training for officers who do this recruitment. And I think this is really the most crucial part of this law, is that it instructs informants that reduced sentences can't be provided in exchange for their work, and permit informants to request a lawyer if they want one. Which, you know, these are really the two. I'm suspect of the special training, training for officers who recruit confidential informants. But the requirement that law enforcement officers can't tell you that you'll get a reduced sentence, uh, and must permit you to have a lawyer present are the two things that are the most important for me in Rachel's law. And it's, it's something that doesn't exist in a lot of States. Um, and it's something that shouldn't take a tragedy like this to be on the books. Um, you know, in my view, these are things that should be done as like, you know, as standard practices but i understand that
0: yeah there's uh, i mean some of these are such basic um requirements that it honestly shocked me when i first read about rachel's law that there isn't special training provided to officers who recruit Mm -hmm. confidential informants like you are putting people's lives at risk like you're essentially asking them to be an undercover cop which even Mm -hmm. which even even like police need additional training for and these are people who are like may not have the temperament to like keep calm under a high stress situation like trying to bust a drug dealer and like Mm -hmm. may not have have, I mean like may not even have the poker face like something as simple as that you know to like Mm -hmm. and putting them in in incredibly risky situations like I'm just trying to think of like what I would be like if I had to go do like a high level like MDMA bust like there's no way I'd be able to just like like pass it off as like I'm like completely calm and okay about this you know this is Mm -hmm. like something I do every weekend you know
1: Mm mm-hmm and yeah, as someone, I mean, as a non-lawyer who's main exposure to confidential informants is reading of the news and crime TV shows, I, I had heard of Rachel's Law before, and I knew that it had really restricted that a lot. Um, but I hadn't realized about this, this aspect of it, saying that you can't reduce sentences in exchange for being a confidential informant. And, and I'd always assumed that that was basically really the main if not the only reason to do it or like that's what the system was all about um rochelle do you have any more insight on that in terms of like if they can't do that what do they exchange instead is it saying that it's okay to wipe it off but not reduce it or something
0: yeah so the police officers who are on the like arresting side don't really have a say in what the final sentence is going to be um, they can say, I mean, like, what they do have the authority to do is, like, decide what charges they're going to bring forward um, or recommendations they would make to the prosecutors. But as far as, like, what, what you actually get convicted of or, like, what your plea deal is, ultimately, um, that's not up to police officers at all. And I, I think that's kind of what... Mm. What that provision means when it says like police can't actually make deals for you. They can if you if you're a really good confidential informant and they're pleased with your work. Let's say in the best case scenario, um, if they they can go tell the prosecutor's office like hey you should drop the charges against this person. They helped us bust this other person. The prosecutor is likely to listen because if the cops don't cooperate, then they don't really have like strong mm-hmm. witnesses um, to help get you convicted. Um, and but ultimately, cops can't promise you anything because if the prosecutor or judge um, does have like a vendetta against like drug users or for whatever reasons wants to bring the hammer down hard even if you put your life at risk and do do a ci mission and make it out alive um you know the the cops who put you in that situation can't guarantee anything about the outcome of your case Mm
2: -hmm. and i think this i think this process shows a huge disconnect in the way that law enforcement officers Conceptualize drug crime uh, because, you know, these cases are really good examples of this, but you've got two people who are, you know, uh, brought in on low level, uh, you know, drug crimes, things that are, you know, legal in many states and then expected to be part of massive drug rings and to like blend in perfectly there. And like, I just think it shows gross incompetence on the side of law enforcement officers and it's a practice that's like morally and ethically wrong. Uh, and so for me, you know, this new year coming in 2017 is I hope to develop uh, resources and spread resources and, and really do a lot of work to be proactive about protecting citizens who might be at risk for being approached about this, particularly young people, because they're more susceptible to this, especially folks who, uh, you know, have a lot to lose, uh, are worried about their future, uh, don't have access to adequate support networks or understand legal processes, you know, don't have a good lawyer or a family that is like well-versed in these sorts of things, like whatever it is, like the more proactive we can be about strengthening civil rights, I think, and especially moving into like a Donald Trump era where we are facing down like the potential erosion of many civil rights uh, and any piece that drug policy reformers can put into place that increase the strength of citizens' rights is really important to me and something that I think 2017 will uh, take up a lot of my focus. Um, I'm really excited I'm actually putting together a toolkit for work for Students for Sensible Drug Policy about confidential informants and what our chapters and allies can do to be proactive about these things so that we don't have to, you know, wait until another tragedy happens before change happens. And, you know, there was a lot of... um, there was a lot of momentum around this uh, after uh, the death of Andrew Sadik was revealed, and there was a lot of momentum after the murder of Rachel Hoffman. And I think those things have died out uh, as far as like public support and public outrage. And so I'm hoping this year that we can shine some more light on this and and really make some headway uh, in places, uh, you know, so that we don't have to wait for another uh, moral outrage that'll last for two weeks and then you know see no see no results.
0: Nice. I was about to ask um like what resources even exist out there for, for CI rights or for people who may find themselves in that situation. So I'm really glad that SSDP is putting together a toolkit for that.
2: Yeah. Um, and there'll be more in my call to action at the end of the show too.
0: Noise. Oh, that makes me that reminds me I have to think of a call to action before the end of the show. <laughs> <laughs> so my New Year's resolution this year is to um Like, educate myself more and to kind of spread awareness more about psychedelics as medicine. I think that's going to be a huge issue coming up in 2017. We've already seen a lot of development around this topic, specifically in 2016. Um, um, Particularly a couple weeks ago, we reported on the Uh, MAPS, Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies, their um, MDMA clinical trials for the treatment Mm -hmm. of PTSD has just uh, received their final phase, like approval for their final phase of trials. Um, But overall, I think this is a great, this is a great issue kind of coming into an era where Marijuana policy reform is seen as almost a mainstream issue now with how much progress we've made in the past couple of years, but it's a good one. Um, It's a good reform to talk about, I think, in an era where we may be seeing a renewed, more conservative lens on drug policy, Um, because it is hard to deny when something um, is medicine and is treating seriously ill people um, and is not just, like, quote-unquote, just for recreational use, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that, um, you know, things like MDMA have been particularly demonized by certain demographics or certain opponents um, because they are seen as, like, hard festival, like, rave drugs. But I think with clinical trials that are focused on treating PTSD, which often affects um, groups like uh, veterans, which receive a lot of conservative support, Um, Policemen and firefighters in particular. um, I think this may have this has the potential to become a strong bipartisan issue The same way that, you know, uh, cannabis policy reform kind of took foot uh, Took hold first um, Mm -hmm. as a medical issue
1: Absolutely, I think that in the same way of kind of seeing how far cannabis has come and trying to use that model in order to improve policies around other drugs that this is a fantastic way to do it. And it and it is so exciting too of that they're able to go through the FDA for this sort of thing, which has been, you know, blocked um, on the marijuana side of things for quite some time for a lot of other political reasons. But these other drugs don't have the same sort of unique restrictions that cannabis has. And so actually being able to advance that, especially when it seems the Trump administration is going to end up actually being quite conservative um, as far as most of his appointees. But Uh, Some of the rumors seem that the FDA may go in a bit more of a libertarian direction, so uh, that could be one of the few agencies that ends up uh, actually being pro-drug policy reform.
0: Yeah, so we mentioned this, um, like, a couple episodes when we were talking about the the approval of those clinical trials that, Sam, your partner, Charlotte, actually works with MAPS specifically mm-hmm. on these clinical trials. Do you have any, like, insider information for us about what might be coming up? <laughs> uh,
1: well, no, no real insider secrets or anything like that, but I do just know that they... Are, yeah, now moving on to phase three of their trials, which is uh, the the final of the three, and is incredibly exciting just that they're getting so close to it now. I, I know that it is a much bigger lift, it seems, than the first two, um, and so they are going to be having a lot more work ahead of them, um, and I, I know that they're beefing up their team. I've been seeing some stuff about... Um, some job postings and things like that and some of the, uh, I think the SSDP uh, jobs and opportunities groups. And so there are a lot of really cool opportunities uh, to be working with an organization like that. So if any of our listeners are uh, interested in that sort of thing, keep an eye out because it does seem like uh, a lot of the the science, both on MDMA. And I know there's a lot of interesting stuff on psilocybin and some other drugs that's uh, really moving forward really quickly right now.
0: Um. So as far as like studies that people may be able to participate in, if you're mm-hmm. interested, MAPS actually has a really good uh, page on the website, which we'll link to in the notes for this episode, um, that links to a whole bunch of studies that you can participate in um, for clinical trials and clinical studies around psychedelics treating various Um, disorders and illnesses so if this is something you're interested in we'll throw it up on our website other studies um, and they're not all sponsored by maps they include links to um, studies like at johns hopkins we know that um, they were using uh, psilocybin to treat tobacco addiction Um, Mm -hmm. um, in that case and um, there's
1: been some really cool stuff on treating alcoholism as well, which I, th- I think is really exciting just because that's another one of those things like PTSD that there really is no real cure for right now.
0: hmm. Um, there's one that I haven't clicked on yet, but it says histories of psychedelic use of people over 65. So a really broad mm-hmm. range of demographics and populations. What I think is interesting too, like as, as far as drug policy reform within the political climate that we find ourselves in is that you know post election there's been so so many parallels and we've already talked about this too like between the political era we're entering now and kind of the shift we saw a couple decades ago between the more progressive 60s and 70s going into Mm -hmm. the 80s era um psychedelics started as like therapeutic research like nobody was really using them recreationally before people looked into them as medicine um do you guys have any thoughts on like our return to those roots or origins?
2: I think that there is a serious, um, desire to, uh, it seems to me that there's, there's two different, like, um, schools of thought that I encounter very often with psychedelic, um, movement stuff is that some folks are really interested in, uh, sort of like, legitimizing and and making these things academic uh, and and really getting them to go mainstream and and then there are other folks who are really interested in like using psychedelics as tools for total and radical transformation of of culture and society and I, I think you know, one of the things I really uh, admire and impresses me about maps is the way that they kind of like meet both of those approaches where they're at, and they do a lot of exceptionally academic, rigorous trials that are approved by the FDA uh, about psychedelics. And they also find a way to like, uh, you know, reach out to some of their other folks who might you know you might consider them a base, although I think that might be, um, you know, overestimating the size of those folks who are like uh, who think that psychedelics will like literally change the world and the way that humans uh, interact with each other. Because I think MAPS also understands that there is a transformative potential for psychedelics. Uh, You know, maybe it's not exactly what all of these folks uh, say it is on Facebook, uh, right? Uh, But I, I, yeah, but I I, I, I guess.
0: Sorry, I was going to say MAPS definitely doesn't ignore the spirituality aspect of of the psychedelic experience for a lot of people.
2: And so I think that, to your question, Rochelle, of, like, where we're going, I think we're going to go somewhere different, uh, but, like, rooted in this sort of, like, using psychedelics as a, like, therapeutic and, like, scientific application, but in a way that, like, shifts uh, culture and how we treat each other and, and how we treat mental illness and how we view those sorts of things. Because once people start seeing that, like, oh, like, there are some forms of mental illness that, you know, can can be significantly improved using psychedelics and not as a, a sustained medication, but as as a, you know, um, entry point for therapy and like, uh, behavioral, like, like cognitive behavioral therapy too. Um, I think that'll change the way that we like, it'll change stigma about addiction. So much about, so much of these psychedelic studies are about alcohol addiction and nicotine addiction, but like, it also changed stigmas about uh, depression and anxiety and all these sorts of things too. And, and maybe that'll be something that is, that is significantly uh, impactful for a political reality where, Uh, lots of folks are are traumatized on a mass scale uh, by uh, national and global politics.
3: I was going to try and go next, but Tyler took the words out of my mouth, and I agree with everything he just said.
0: (laughs) Um, Yeah, definitely interesting to see. I mean, the last point I wanted to make was that there was a an article in the women's magazine, Mary Claire, pretty recently um, about microdosing as like a productivity or microdosing LSD as a productivity booster for, quote unquote, high powered women. Um, and I think that Mary Claire articles are always interesting because I've kind of seen that that magazine in particular is often on the forefront of like cultural shifts in attitudes drug towards drug policy reform. They did an article Like what feels like a long time ago about stiletto stoners that kind of introduced the idea of Mm -hmm. mainstream, you know, like, like stylish, um, you know, high powered women like using cannabis just to relax and unwind the, the same way you would use wine. And then that kind of that image became perpetuated in the in Mm -hmm. the next three four Mm -hmm. years through um legalization and organizations like women grow in particular and now they're writing about microdosing lsd too so i'm interested to see you know if they if they'll be like the predictors of a change in attitudes towards these types of drugs um again in the coming years just as they have been in the past
2: Mm -hmm.
1: absolutely and so It was so great hearing about everybody's New Year's resolutions. This does have me very excited about 2017. I'm definitely nervous about a lot of things uh, of Trump actually being in power um, and for the direction of a lot of other ongoing issues that we've talked about. But I think there's still going to be a lot of exciting and really positive things to look forward to as well. Um, but as all of you, especially Rochelle, are quite familiar with, uh, we always wrap up our discussions with a call to action since educating people is pretty useless if they're not, then using that knowledge to make positive change. So if you could have our listeners do something right now, what is it that you would ask them to do? Uh, Rochelle, do you want to start it off?
0: Um, not really. I always forget to prepare my own calls to action whenever we do this. But <laughs> I, I can go right <laughs> um, all right, Tyler can go first. <laughs>
2: Sam, can you uh, re-say that and say, like, Tyler, do you want to start us off?
0: Oh, no. I don't – I mean, I don't mind doing that. I mean – Leaving that in? Yeah.
2: Oh, no, but I – I'm sorry. Just for editing purposes. uh, Or – I'm sorry. I, we've already do. <laughs> this I, is the yeah. same thing you and me did. That yeah. Reason. Oh my god, this is the worst. I think um, that would
1: be fun to leave in if you guys are cool with it. And if yeah, we can leave it just... in.
2: Yeah, let's leave it in. Yeah, I'll, I'll. I felt
0: like that was kind of natural. If you just want to cut yeah. out the part where we no, like pulled
2: no, no. him out is, after Yeah, <laughs> yeah we'll, we'll cut this specific part out. I'll figure it now out. Now we okay. should leave this whole thing. <laughs> yeah I know we should leave this whole thing out. Well, so this is what happens behind the scenes, and we're really glad to be able to expose this to our listeners. Uh, thanks for staying with us. It's really great to interact with you all, and, like, hopefully you get a sense of what the team is like when we all get together, which is uh, this. So I will I will uh, go into my call to action, which is uh, to tie it back to the confidential informants piece and, and civil rights is – you can easily host a Know Your Rights event. Um, if you're in school, you can rent a room. If you're in a community, maybe go to a library. I'd recommend using the videos produced by Flex Your Rights. They have a bunch of, they actually have two feature-length films and a bunch of shorter films about specific questions about what your civil rights are when interacting with law enforcement. And it's a really important way to teach people not to talk to cops, uh, which is basically the moral of the story and to always have a lawyer. So uh, reach out to Flex Your Rights. You can find their YouTube page. And if you are involved with an ssdp chapter or near a local ssdp chapter ask them to host a screening they're always really successful events and i uh, think they do a lot to educate people and and make them better stewards of uh, civil rights
1: awesome uh sarah do you want to give us your call to action for our listeners
3: yeah so tying back to my resolution of staying um, informed about the situation in the philippines I would ask our listeners to check out um, groups like the International Drug Policy Consortium and groups like the International Network of People Who Use Drugs, um, and specifically the um, Asian Network of People Who Use Drugs. All of these are nonprofit organizations working um, on the ground to try and guarantee human rights for people who are using drugs, um, and they try and keep their members, um, keep people as informed about the issue as they can.
0: Okay. I'm ready now. All
1: right.
3: <laughs> Yay.
0: Okay. So mine is going to be kind of a repeat call to action that we've done. I, f- I feel like a couple weeks ago, but, um, there's 15 days left in maps campaign to make, to like raise the money they need to make MDMA illegal medicine. So if you go to maps.org slash, slash G M P. And I don't know what those what those letters stand for, but G as in gorilla, M as in monkey, and P as in pirate. So maps.org slash GMP. You can still donate to help um, their campaign to raise money to continue MDMA research and hopefully make it a prescription medicine for PTSD and other um, uh, disorders like depression and mental illnesses that have been resistant to treatment. They still need $9,809 to go. Um, if you don't have money, the other, the second best thing you could do is probably spread awareness, uh, to your friends and family when you're talking to them, when you see them this holiday, um, about psychedelics becoming a legitimate medicine and not, you know, and being able to treat people who haven't been able to, um, get better from the medicines that are currently available on the market.
1: Awesome. Awesome. And if that is their fundraiser campaign to, to purchase the, the lab MDMA, I I think that the GMP might stand for good manufacturing practices. But it also might be another acronym that also just has GMP. <laughs> um and then for mine, for my call to action, um a little bit uh just reflecting back on what my new year's resolution is but if that's something that's really interesting to you working on decriminalization volunteering whatever skills you have to help move that issue forward on some specific campaigns if you live in massachusetts as well and want to work with me on state level stuff here if you live in another state and want to work on it at your local level or if you live pretty much anywhere and just want to help out from afar Please reach out to me personally. This is something that I, I, I do really want to start working on. Um, so What's I'm gonna your be cell devoting... phone number, Sam? <laughs> you can email me. What's your
2: Snapchat? Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: So I think I actually do still have a Snapchat, although I deleted the app uh, like years ago, but people have told me that my account is still floating out there. But if you Snapchat me, I will not see it. But you can just message me on Facebook. Um, or message the Twid Facebook page or email us at thisweekanddrugs at gmail.com or sam.j.tracy at gmail.com, and we will find each other. And so reach out to me. We can try to uh, get this campaign off the ground, and I'd be really excited to, to see what we can do in 2017 all right and so yeah that wraps up the calls to action and our entire big discussion here with the whole team with our new year's resolution so thank you so much again uh to tyler and sarah for joining us today and uh rochelle as well as being kind of a
2: guest as well as a host
3: hey thanks guys
2: <laughs> it was great to be on Thanks for listening to episode 75 of This Week in Drugs, the season finale for season three. Starting next week, we'll be on our brief hiatus uh, in which just Sam and myself will be bringing you news updates every week. So stay tuned to stay in touch with the biggest news headlines and forecasts in drug policy. If you have any feedback for us, please feel free to email us at thisweekindrugs at gmail.com or you can message us on social media. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like the show, please make sure to subscribe and give us a rating on iTunes, which makes it easier for other people to find us. And if you really want to support us um, and give us your money, go ahead and check out our Patreon page where you can become a monthly supporter and get access to a bunch of perks uh, for doing so. Our outro song today is The Spark That Bled by Colin Quest Glisseau.